neighbor. You're listening to the New Garden Church Podcast. We're glad you're here. This year, we are walking through the whole Bible together as a church family day by day and week by week. We're meeting online right now, but we normally meet at 10 a.m. at DuPont Tyler Middle School in Hermitage, Tennessee. You can catch our weekly gatherings live by checking out our website at online. We would love to hear from you. Thanks to everyone in the area who came out and supported our mobile food pantry on Saturday. It was an awesome day. We were able to serve over 200 households totaling in nearly 1,000 people. We couldn't do it without our volunteers and Second Harvest. Also, big shout out to News Channel 5 for all of their help. We're already excited for next time. This week, Jeff provided a message based at Mount Sinai in the book of Exodus about how God prioritizes relationship over rules. We hope that you enjoy what you hear today and check back in with us again soon. Good morning and welcome to week five of our Long Story Short series. We are making our way through the Bible this year and it's day 31 of our reading plan, which means we're finishing the book of Exodus today. What? We've read two whole books. So I need to say, great job. And also, I'm sorry, because tomorrow starts Leviticus. This is usually where people start giving up, but power through and in a week and a half you will be in numbers. Another tough one, but you can do it. Uh, as for today, we're still in Exodus at Mount Sinai, and we'll probably hang out around here next week too, because that's where the people of Israel are until Numbers chapter 10. But before we get into the story, I want to take a moment and give a quick thought about something we read last week, but I didn't have time to explain. But I think this is important to know as you read through the rest of the Bible. It's an odd feature in our English Bibles that you may not have noticed or did, but didn't know what it meant, and it pertains to the name of God. Now, maybe we think God has many names like Creator, Lord, Healer, Redeemer, King, or God with a big G, but those are not names. Those are titles based on attributes. Like, I have titles like Father, Husband, Minister, Brother, but my name is Jeff. So what is God's name, and why don't we see it in our Bibles? Well, it's there, but it's kind of hiding under the surface. And in the story of the burning bush, which we discussed last week, one of the big reveals in God's conversation with Moses is God's personal name. Now, as you remember, God appears to Moses, and he commissions him to liberate the Israelites from slavery. And Moses makes excuse after excuse, uh, like, what if the people ask your name, and who's this God who sent me? And so God responds, and God said to Moses, Eyeh, Asher, Eyeh, I am who I am. And he said, This is what you shall say to the sons of Israel, Eyeh, I am, has sent me to you. Now, this Hebrew word, Eyeh, means I am or I will be. In other words, God's name means that he is the one who is and who will be. God's existence doesn't depend on anyone or anything else. God simply is. But it'll sound kind of strange for Moses to go to the Israelites and say, I will be has sent me to you. Like only God can say, I will be. So in the next sentence, God tells Moses the version he should say aloud. Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. Now that word Yahweh is the ancient Hebrew form of the verb he will be. 
And this is the personal name of the God of Israel. It appears over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. Now, here's where things get interesting. Over the centuries, Israelites wanted to honor the sacred nature of this divine name. So as they read the Hebrew Bible aloud and they came to this name, they stopped saying Yahweh. And instead, they started saying the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai. Now, this practice has been continued throughout the centuries. And so later, when people started translating the Bible into English, they adopted the same practice. Instead of spelling out the divine name, they translated it as Lord, spelled in all capital letters. Okay, you got that? Good, okay, because there's more. Ancient Jewish scribes wanted to prevent anyone from even like accidentally saying this name aloud when you read the Hebrew Bible. So they came up with a visual device to remind you to make sure you say Adonai. So they took the four consonant letters of the divine name. Now these letters correspond to our English letters Y-H-W-H. And then they inserted the three vowels from the word Adonai. And they combined these together to create this artificial hybrid word, which if you pronounce it, it would sound something like Yahuwah, but no Israelites is, no Israelites is going to say Yahuwah. It is simply a visual reminder to say the word Adonai. Now it gets more interesting. Much later, Christian scribes came along who didn't know that Yahuwah was an artificial word. So they began to say it aloud and then spell it in their writings. And this is the word that eventually entered into English as Jehovah. Now, it's a word many people still use today, but the main thing is the word LORD in all capital letters is an indication of the divine name Yahweh. Now, don't confuse it with the word LORD in your English translations that's not in all capital letters. That's actually the Hebrew word Adon, which just means L-O, Lord, lowercase, or master. Now, this word can refer to people like kings or the master of a servant, even like a shepherd of sheep. And sometimes the biblical authors will use this word to refer, refer to God or both, as in Psalm 97. But behind all of these words, Jehovah, Lord, Adonai, stands the original divine name of the God of Israel, Yahweh. It refers to the one who was and who is and who forever will be. And so when you see the word Lord on the screen, but hear me say the name Yahweh sometimes, this is why. It's our God's name. And this God, Yahweh, is the one who delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He showed his power and his might with plague after plague, each one to show how he is master over creation. And it comes to its climax in this Passover, where God protects the children of Israel by the blood of a lamb. Now, this act has been remembered for thousands of years to this day, and it serves as the foundation story for the Lord's Supper, which we celebrate every Sunday. God's love in action. God's power on display. But one misconception we must face about the Old Testament concerns the law. Now, we're about to take a deep dive into the law for the next few weeks, but sometimes when we think about the Old Testament, the law is all we can think of. Like the most famous of the pages in the Old Testament, Exodus 20, is where we find the famous Ten Commandments. But an important thing to remember, what comes before Exodus 20? 
Exodus 19. I know it's mind blowing how numbers work. In fact, Exodus chapters 13 through 14 also come before 20. Now I draw you some sort of diagram, but you can just look in your Bible. Again, that's easy to understand, but that's one of my main points in the lesson today. Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments comes after the Exodus from Egypt. Now Christians often have the wrong impression about the Old Testament law. Many of us assume that the Old Testament times, the Israelites had to earn salvation by following the Sinai law. And then when Jesus came, he did away with that notion by making salvation free for you know, everybody. Now, this is a terribly unfortunate picture of the Old Testament, but it's easily resolved by taking a closer look at the story. Now, the Israelites arrive at Mount Sinai in chapter 19 of Exodus. That's where Yahweh will give them the law. However, God's elaborate deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt takes place in the chapters like 3 through 14. So if the law were a prerequisite for salvation, then we would expect Moses in Egypt making this public service announcement like, hey everybody, good news, Yahweh can get you out of here. There's just one catch. You're going to have to agree to live by these rules. Like if you just sign on the dotted line saying you agree to these conditions, you'll be on your way. And as you know, that's not what happens. Yahweh delivers them with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment without first checking their homes for idols or performing an audit of their morality. His deliverance has to do with his character and his promise to their ancestor Abraham rather than their righteousness. Now it's true, God had given instructions to Abraham and his sons, which they were to obey, but he had not given them any sort of permanent code of conduct to live by. So whatever Sinai represents, it cannot be a prerequisite for salvation because Israel has already been delivered when they arrive. So in order to understand the law at Sinai, what it's for, we'll need to take seriously where and when it is given and how it is framed. So if you think about a picture frame, it does more than just hold a picture on a wall. Like It helps you focus on the painting because it defines the boundaries of the picture. Now, sometimes you also see this within a painting. Take Leonardo da Vinci's painting, The Last Supper. In it, Jesus sits at the center of a long table with six of his disciples on either side. Each of them are grouped in clusters of three. Now, it's not that the twelve are insignificant, but Jesus matters more. He is at the center of the focus. All the lines of perspective point towards his face, which is framed by this window behind him. And that window is flanked by windows and then these four columns on either side of the room, drawing your eye to the center. Now, this framing technique is not only effective in visual art, it also works in story. Now, we talked last week about this literary device, chiasm. We pointed it out in the Noah story, and we discussed it in Moses' origin story. And wouldn't you know it, it shows up in the Sinai story too. Now, I realize it's a new concept for some of us, but if you think about it like a peanut butter sandwich uh, with jelly, you spread the peanut butter on both pieces of bread, and then you put the jelly in the middle so that the bread doesn't get soggy, it creates this ABC B, A pattern, where A is the bread, B is the peanut butter, C is the jelly, and then it works its way, it works its way to the center and then works its way back out with similar elements. Now, when it comes to a biblical text, the same effect can be achieved by pairing similar elements on either side of a central event or statement. Now, this is exactly what we have at Sinai. So how do we know that Sinai is so important? Well, Israel camps out at the mountain from Exodus 19 all the way until Numbers 10. A lot happens there, but it's the wilderness narratives on either side of Sinai that frame it, creating this literary sandwich. So check this out. 
On either side of Sinai, the narrator mentions six campsites. Before Sinai, the desert is mentioned seven times. After Sinai, the desert is mentioned seven times. We get manna and quail once before Sinai and once after. We have two requests for water before Sinai and two requests for water after Sinai. We get a gushing rock once before Sinai and once after. Before Sinai, we have this angelic messenger, and after Sinai, we have an angelic messenger. We have a battle with the Amalekites on either side of Sinai. Before Sinai, a Midianite family member of Moses offers him guidance. After Sinai, a Midianite family member of Moses offers him guidance. And before and after Sinai, leadership responsibilities are delegated delegated to someone else. Now this remarkable list shows us that the narrator is clearly and intentionally trying to get us to focus on Mount Sinai. Its central importance is underscored by this literary framing effect. So in Numbers chapter 33, we're going to read a complete list of 42 sites where Israel camped in the wilderness. But in these narratives, only six stops are mentioned on both sides of the mountain to help create this literary sandwich. So with all the symmetry on either side of Sinai, we might we might begin to wonder like whether anything changes there. It seems the same after as it does before, but there have been big changes. God picks the ideal place to do his transforming work, the wilderness. Now there's a technical word for this that might be helpful. That word is liminality. Liminal space is the space between worlds. It comes from this Latin word that means threshold. It's like standing in a doorway to a building. You're neither inside or or outside. You're in between. So in a metaphorical sense, we experience liminality on a regular basis. Like an airport is liminal space. People go through it on their way to somewhere else. The airport is not the final destination. Liminal spaces can be disorienting. They challenge and they reshape our sense of identity. And this is why every ritual around the world includes this element of liminality. Think about college. Young people leave their families and enter a new community. Everything changes. Their rhythm of life, new place to sleep, new companions, new sources of food, new authorities requiring things of them, new rules, new schedules, new opportunities, but they're not allowed to stay when their requirements are completed. They cross the stage, receive a diploma, and then they're sent out into the world, newly equipped for a different kind of work. So in Israel's case, the process continues on their way to the mountain. In this liminal space of the wilderness at Sinai, God is remaking his people. He's stripping them of all they knew from Egypt and they're disoriented. Like, where can we find food and water and protection? Who's going to lead us? Who's going to fight our battles? And all these questions and more are answered for them in the wilderness. Yahweh reveals himself and his character. They learn to depend on him. As they're fleeing from Egypt, Yahweh ensures their safety. First, he provides a way of escape, like a direction. Now, it may not have been the easiest route, but it is one that will demonstrate his power and bring him glory. Second, he provides safety. Even though like at night, he brings light to their camp to take away fear of being attacked. Trust is not automatic, and God does not expect it to be. He patiently works on Israel's behalf until they see that he is worthy of their confidence. Now, the wilderness, it's his classroom. And what, happened, what else happens in the classroom? People get hungry, so Yahweh provides food. Life in Egypt was hard. The Israelites worked under oppressive conditions, but it didn't take long in the wilderness for them to start wanting to go back. They were hungry, and hunger is a powerful master. All they could think about was the all-you-can-eat lifestyle they had in Egypt, and in that time of need, Yahweh provided manna. 
The word manna literally means, what is it? Like nobody knows. But manna was not just God's way of providing for their physical needs. It was also a test. Yahweh wanted to see whether they could follow his instructions. So if you remember from the story, God provided manna for six days and then nothing on the seventh day. They were only supposed to collect like one day's worth of manna at a time, showing their trust that God would continue to provide. But on day six, they were supposed to collect double so that they could have a day off on the Sabbath. Some people listened and they had provision. Some people didn't and they faced hunger. But before he even gave them the Sabbath law, Yahweh was training them in this rhythm of trust. Now, we all have moments in our lives where we can't seem to find which way is up. We feel lost, but we should remember that the wilderness is often God's workshop. It always has been. Sometimes God has lessons to teach us that we can only learn in the state of wondering, in the liminal space. And this liminal space continues as they approach their destination at Mount Sinai. They've begun to trust the rhythm of life God has created, but it's just the beginning. Soon, He will outline a whole bunch of commands. And again, we'll be reading through them over the next few weeks. And without the right context, they can come off as rigid rules one does to ensure this relationship with God. But as a reminder, Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20 and everything that follows. God has already established the relationship, but now he wants to give parameters to ensure that this relationship works for everybody. God's first message at Sinai lays the groundwork for all the rest of his instructions. These words set a new trajectory for the nation of Israel. And if we miss it, we'll likely mischaracterize everything else. So Moses hikes up the mountain to meet with God, and God gets straight to the point. This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So many times we think the idea of grace is a new concept reserved for the New Testament and Christians. But these words from God to His people are dripping with grace. When Yahweh responded to the cries of the Israelites in Egypt, He didn't blame them for their predicament. He didn't tell them they were worthless or they deserved what they got. He said they were a treasure set apart for a special purpose. Sometimes we miss the grace because we too often see the Ten Commandments without the glorious concept of the deliverance that got them there. We miss the grace because we read the judgment stories in isolation without the long list of second chances they receive. When we read the laws on their own without the deliverance, we come out with a skewed picture of the Old Testament God. Israel didn't see Yahweh like that. These verses are a prime example of grace. We see Yahweh's decisive military victory over Israel's oppressor. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt. God triumphed over Egypt to set his people free. You see Yahweh's loving care for Israel in the wilderness. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He carried them. Like they're like a branch being carried by a bird. Branches can't fly, but when they're lifted and delivered, it's the eagle that gets the credit. Yahweh invites them to a covenant faithfulness. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, 
God is no harsh taskmaster. He drew Israel to himself and he offers them his commitment to bless them. And Yahweh selects Israel as his ambassador. They are set apart from other nations for special service. Out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. In other words, the Israelites were chosen for a purpose. They were to represent Yahweh among the nations. He set them apart the way priests are set apart for temple service. But rather than reserving the holy status for a priestly class, Yahweh calls an entire nation to be holy. These are powerful words, setting the Israelites on a new trajectory. God speaks into the darkness of their past and of the undefined possibilities of their present to tell them who they are. Understanding this context can help us grasp the purpose of the law that God gives them next. This is no ball and chain from a new authoritarian leader. Yahweh is not Pharaoh. God is inviting His people into a new life characterized by loyal worship and love for their neighbor. These laws define the boundaries of their life as God's covenant people. It helped them lean into their new role as His ambassadors among the nations, and it was a reason to celebrate. The law was a gift. The people willingly agreed both before and after they heard the law. As modern Western readers, we're liable to misunderstand how this law functions. It's not legislation to be enforced in the court of law. There's no strict penalties like universally applied. In fact, the penalties for violation are usually left unstated. Israel has no police force, no jails, no highly developed court system. The Hebrew word Torah is often translated as law, but it can also mean teaching or instruction. So at Sinai, Yahweh is teaching them how to live the good life, how to cultivate a kind of different community in which people look out for each other and proper worship of God is the center of society. These instructions are not arbitrary. They're they're fully relational, the fruit of a committed relationship with a God who rescued Israel from a life of slavery. They are good news. Now we're going to stay on the mountain next week and look at this famous first 10 But before we talk about them, I wanted to give us a lens through which to see them. For centuries, God's people have misused and abused these commands. So often you hear, in order to have a relationship with God, in order to be redeemed, in order to be saved, you have to do these things. Like, what's wrong with America? We're not keeping the Ten Commandments. That's what's wrong with America. We should be doing these things. No. What's wrong with America? America hasn't left Egypt. We have other gods and idols that we continue to serve. The point at the beginning still stands. Chapter 19 comes before chapter 20. Grace always comes before works. It's not something new in the New Testament. Right here at Sinai, he says to them, I delivered you. I've saved you. I've redeemed you by my power. You didn't do anything. Now, if you keep these commands, people are going to be able to identify you as my people, and that will lead other people to me. But we don't get grace. We confuse it with religion. So here's a chart that contrasts religion and grace from Tim Keller. Religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Religion is chapter 20, then chapter 19. No, gospel grace is, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Chapter 19, and then chapter 20. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. Gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy before the law is given, he says. Are you willing to do this? Yes, we will. We will. 
They're happy. They want to do it before the law is given. Religion says, I obey God in order to get things from God. Grace says, I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble Him. Like, Don't be afraid of Him. He does this so you'll keep His commands, so you'll be like Him and people will come and see that. To be a holy people that can reach the world. Grace means there's nothing, there is nothing we can do to cause God to love us more, and there's nothing we can do to cause God to love us less. It's by grace, not by works. It wasn't about works in the Old Testament. It's not about that in the New Testament. It's always been by God's power and by His grace always. But grace is hard. It's hard for us to get. We always confuse it. We're not listening to God's Word. It's like we're listening to something or someone else. Listen, listen to me. You're not good enough. That's right. I'm calling your bluff. You've messed up one too many times. You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're going to have to pay for your crimes. You might have been able to sneak by if you just weren't so bad at doing life. Come on. Don't be proud. You know what I'm talking about. Don't make me say it out loud. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, try harder. Do more. It's the way the world spins. You're not good enough today, but maybe tomorrow you might win. Like, tell you what, fresh start. Give it your best shot. Try harder. Do more. Show them what you got. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. If you fight for justice, if you join the right cause, if you read this book, if you sing the right songs, if you do all the right things and say all the right words, then you'll be accepted. Then your prayers will be heard. Trust me, you'll get what you're owed. Everything that's yours, good things come to those who work, people who carry their load. For by His grace, you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. No, no, uh, listen to me. If you want to be accepted, certain things are expected. Now, I don't mean to sound over the top, but you, you simply have to obey. If you can't learn to play by the rules, it doesn't matter what you say. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead on our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Love. I want to be loved. It's just... It's hard to believe. Like, could God love me just as I am? Isn't that naive? This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. That's it for this week. Thank you for checking in with us and we'll be back with another episode next time.